First Generation Burden, a series of conversations with immigrants and the children of immigrants. My name is Rich Tu and I'm your host. So this is the first official episode of season four. It's technically episode 24 and I know we've had some special drops in the off season, but we'll be back to releasing every Monday for the next few weeks. So I hope you enjoy that. First off, I want to thank the team and listening party in Canal Street Market, which we are officially a part of. We recorded this episode in their space, so it'll sound a bit different than previous episodes, but it's a welcome change of pace, and I really enjoy recording that high-energy environment, so thanks so much to that team. So to kick off the season, we talked to Yael Morcos, a designer, typographer, and co-founder of the studio Morcos Key. I first met Yael in person at this year's Type Drives Culture Conference put on by the Type Directors Club. And I loved his work around Arabic type systems, which he's one of the four most experts on, having worked with clients like Saatchi, Beirut, IBM, and Apple. We talk about YL's upbringing in a small suburb of Beirut in Lebanon, and how he began his creative journey from getting his undergrad at Notre Dame in Lebanon to receiving his MFA at RISD in Rhode Island. He's been honored as one of the 15 under 30 by Print Magazine, a young gun by the Art Directors Club, and an ace sender by the Type Directors Club. We talk a lot about the intersection of identity and academics and design and how one brings their culture into their work in a meaningful way. This is a great and fantastic way to kick off the season. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Y.L. Morcos. All right. Well, this is nice. This This is a different little space here. I think you have a better view. (laughs) <laughs> do you want to switch seats no no, no i'm good I'm okay cool sounds good uh yeah i'm actually going to try to not be distracted by all these people yeah for the listener we're uh recording canal street market this is kind of new for first generation burden and um and also thanks to uh listening party and canal street market team so that's really cool but uh yl yl morcos hello rich how are you i'm good how are you uh i'm doing really good thanks for coming out today Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, first off, welcome to this new space. I'm still, I'm still trying to mentally acclimate myself <laughs> to this environment. It's really weird. But yeah, we're in a cubicle with a lot of windows in the middle of a market. So we see all the people around us walking and shopping. Hey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, just them. wave to the people, if at all possible. I think it's nice. I think it keeps the energy up and good. Yeah, no, I, I yeah. kind of like it. I like vibes. Feel free to like... Uh, twist your seat if you want to just like get more view of these of these other it's human beings. Distracting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, also, this this podcast can go anywhere, so we can just start talking about people walking by. What they're wearing. Yeah, it's totally. Fashion police. Actually, that would be a dope <laughs> podcast coming out. Of here. <laughs> just uh, fashion police because people aren't perusing through clothes. But um, while first of all, thank you for coming to First Generation Burn. Um, this official season four. I know we've had some special drops, but. Uh, technically, I don't know where this sits in the run, but you are officially my first guest uh, for the season. So that's exciting. Yeah. So thank you for that. So um, the way we begin um, our episodes, is, as always, is um, our illustrious guest tells us uh, where they're a little bit about where they're from and a little bit about their upbringing, and then we go from there. So YL, if you could the take us off. The story of my life. Yes. Please. I um, I'm from Lebanon. I was born and raised in Lebanon for most of my life. Uh, I come from a small village in the northern suburbia of Beirut, the capital. Um, Yeah, I mean, I had my um, start in design in Lebanon. I had my undergrad in graphic design in Lebanon, and then I worked several years in design in Lebanon. Oh, wait, let's talk about childhood first. 
Yeah. I want to know. I want tell me about Lebanon. Tell me what it was like growing up in Beirut. You're there. My second guest from Lebanon, first being Ahmed really? Klink. Oh. Yeah, but he um, but he left Lebanon when he was, I think, three to go to move to That's France. Different. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I would love to know a little bit more about. No, that I left much later. I was what? How old was I? Twenty five, six, something like that. Um, Lebanon is cool, crazy. Yeah, I want to hear a vibe. Country that's like, you always feel that it's becoming, you know, it's never arrived to where it needs to be yet. So it has a lot of positive, um, exciting things, um, but it also is disappointing and unfortunate in a lot of ways. And I think we, the new generation, the upcoming kids coming from Lebanon kind of still struggle with that. But yeah, I, I come from a small family. I have one older brother and um, <clears throat> grew up uh, pretty sheltered, actually. Oh, really? yeah. What does that mean? It means that I would, did not um, was not brought up in the middle of Beirut. Like I said, it's a village outside of Beirut. And I really started going to Beirut after when I first got my first job, which was my transition. Got it. Um, which was really an eye-opening of how much left there is to discover and learn, even though I had already finished my degree gotcha. in well, graphic design. Oh, what's, what's a village like in Beirut like, like well, population-wise, vibes? Maybe like, a couple of thousands, a lot of houses dispersed on a hill with like winding roads in between them. Oh, really? With no street names. So for a, lot of, <laughs> for a long period of time, you would refer like, where do you live? And um, actually all my uncles, my dad's brother, lived on the same closed street uh, five or six houses so we used to call it the morco street oh that's cool and for a long period of time i would write the address like the house belonging to my dad's name and then on morco street in zachary the village and when i tell that story a lot of people they find it hilarious and i think that i come from some royal rich family that had their street named after (laughs) them but it was like the street literally now they have numbers so based on practicality yeah (laughs) um we had a lot of place to play to run to bike um yeah. your family still there well my family is all over the place my big family aunts uncles are mostly there but like a lot of families in lebanon half of the families have left you know of uh, following their careers all around so my brother got actually got his education in france and now he works in dubai my dad currently works in congo my mom is still in lebanon at a certain point, we were four family members at four different continents, and we tried to have oh, a wow. family reunion over Skype like that. <laughs> well, yeah. What'd your parents do? Uh, <clears throat> uh, my dad is an electrical mechanical engineer, and I think he comes from a background where his he never had the opportunity to finish uh, a proper education. Really? And yeah, that really, really affected him a lot, I think. And he realized how much of a setback that was for him when he entered the working environment and but he is a, such a hard-working uh, self-taught man he he really did it all by himself and i think that really gave him like a life lesson for the importance of education and investing in that so i he instilled in me and my brother this whole idea that you have to just like be serious about your career about your education we right. are going to support you all the way and you and he also worked on a lot of jobs outside of lebanon so since our early childhood, he had this idea and this opening that there's so much out there besides Lebanon. And don't be afraid to go seek your life, your career, your fortune, your education outside of Lebanon. So yeah, my brother and I always grew up with this mentality that at some point we're going to go continue our education outside of Lebanon. And we had always the backing and the support of our parents, like, go do it. Find 
what you want to do, find the best place to do it, and then work hard for it, and we're here for you. And I think that's really a privilege yeah. to have your family backing you that way and like you have really no excuse to slack or to not really know what you want. And that's really inspiring to see how, how hard he worked and how much he invested in his life for our education, which later on brought me to RISD. But gotcha. Yeah, a lot of that does come from my dad. A lot of that excitement, a lot of that openness to new technology and new languages, new right. people, right. Uh, new communities. Uh, it was never something that he was afraid of or um, kind of pushed him back to his own bubble on the, on the opposite. And I think that's something that, I, that, I, that he gave me. He, he used to say that you need to learn languages because every language is worth one man. So if you know four languages, you're worth four, four men. If you're worth four languages, if you can worth- talk, if you, if you know four languages, you can speak four languages, you're worth four men, basically. That's so interesting. How many languages do you speak? I speak four. What are your languages? English, English? Arabic, French, and a little bit of Spanish. Oh, a little bit of Spanish. Well, what's what's the relevancy of Spanish within that upbringing? Or is that something you just picked up as an adult? It's just something that I picked up in my teenage years. Um, Does your brain work well in that multilingual space? Because mine doesn't. I think so. I think it's also something specific to Lebanon. Lebanon is a very small country uh, with a total of about 4 million people. And it's situated in the middle... um, of a lot of different countries and throughout civilization have always been conquered, colonized by so many civilizations from the Egyptians to the Romans to the Ottoman Empire to French colonization. Everybody passed by Lebanon and when you walk around you see all those, you see there's still effigies and ruins of all these empires. Right. So, which is really cool. It's such a small place with a huge history of going back thousands of years. Right, really rich. Yes, but it also comes down to people today don't know where they belong, don't know what Lebanese identity is. It looks like they're divided along a lot of religious lines of belonging. Yeah. So, did you grow up religious at all? Yes, I was raised in a Catholic family. I was actually an altar boy. Really? Yes, no, I was. Would I was go Catholic early. too. <laughs> yeah. I would go early to make sure I get the Sunday readings. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still religious? Out no, of I'm not. I'm not. You know, it's funny the way that creative individuals go. It's kind of, you know, you, you end up making your own decisions after a certain yeah. point. But it is, I, what I benefited from my early uh, Catholic upbringing was um, a sense of structure. And like it was mm. a regimentation of some yeah. sort that kind of yeah. got me there. Like, what about creativity? When did that when did that start entering your life and in what form? I think I've always been creative as a kid. My favorite toys have always been the artsy kind of toys that you use to make something out of. A um, little bit of role play and theater games also where I was attracted to. But, um, you know, all the like physical activity that we do by hand to create something too. Whether it's painting or... Uh, playing with gypsum molds to create little figurines or and then like the typewriter I had a toy that was a typewriter I had a my favorite Christmas toy was a radio that I could record on a cassette and like playing back and I would like um, record my own radio interviews so I always played I guess now I could call it with like you know creating content and creating media and putting it out there right and I remember when we were 14 my dad got us a huge computer set the house we had a computer, a scanner, and printer at the f- same time ever. Um, and that was also eye-opening because it allowed me to start scanning things, playing with things, and um, t- 
tinkering around with Photoshop, and then I realized, I remember that the idea of finding a clip art and adding a word next to it to make fun of my brother. Oh, really? It made me feel really empowered. And I think it was the trigger to kind of set me on the road that there is something What program there. were you using? It was... It was called Ulite Photo Impact. It was one of those generic photo software that came with the scanner back at that time. Sure. And I was 14, so we're talking a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I moved to Photoshop later on. Gotcha. But I used to do like presentation in PowerPoint and like go to Wikipedia and collect images and like play around. Gotcha. Yeah. When did the, well, academically, when did, when did you decide to make that leap? Yeah, I think in the last couple of years of my high school, I realized that I'm going to do something in the creative field. It was going to be either photography or directing or something called graphic design that people are talking about. Right. That that crazy thing, graphic design. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, cause it was really um, uh, related to what I was doing when I was younger on Photoshop and all these things. And I felt like that is what I find the most exciting. Right. What's the creative culture like out in Lebanon? Oh, um, Beirut is really, really buzzing. Um, there's a really interactive and creative art scene. Uh, there's really an underground of artists and uh, activists yeah. and uh, people who really put all these amazing shows. And I yeah. think it's when I moved to Beirut and I started working um, that I got exposed to that. And I realized there's much more that I still need to learn and I still want to know and take the time to kind of formulate my ideas around those things. Right. Because you're also one of the foremost experts in Arabic typography. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, from my from my understanding, <laughs> um, and well, especially as um, a, a person who represents a young generation and like the new generation of design and creativity, mm-hmm. um, I think well, what's fascinating to me is the way that you bring um, a personal identity into like a very academic and educated POV. You know, um, it, it's I think I think it's fascinating, um, and also like um, you know the nonconformist in me um, always wants to see um, freshness and newness as well as mm-hmm. like a respect for history. So I think you bring all those things in, into play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I always been drawn to Arabic typography, and I think sometimes I think it's because of my inability to be a real full fledged illustrator. Because when you're drawing letters, you're still working with that constraint that it needs to look like a certain letter. And I think that I like working in constraints. I like working in limited briefs um, that kind of set up what you're trying to do. Right. I like. I really thrive in that kind of conditions. Um, so I think that what drew me to Arabic typography is that there's such some sort of an underlying system and yeah. the relationship between all the letters. Yeah. And there's such rich, rich history for the script. Yeah. And what's most exciting is that it's very underdeveloped when it comes to Arabic. Yeah. So there's so much room to explore, to play around with. A lot of things that you do can look uh, new and fresh and it makes you feel excited when you do them. Was that a, was that something that you knew even um, uh, living and working in Beirut? Was that something that you, that you felt there or was that something you discovered at RISD? No, it's something, no, that was something that was instilled in me in my undergrad in Lebanon. Gotcha. Um, we didn't have Arabic typography classes, but now they do actually in their programs, in, in the graphic design programs in Lebanon. But um, I had one teacher, and she was my favorite teacher, and she's still a close friend, 
Uh, her name is Yara Khouri. Mm-hmm. She she was very adamant on like really opening our eye to the potential of what Arabic type can do. That's so interesting. And I think she's also the first one who told when we were talking one day about discussing masters or continued education or furthering uh, our education. She's the first one that mentioned RISD. Right. I had never heard of that school before. Right. Oh, before we get there, sorry. Uh, you went to Notre Dame. Yes. In Lebanon. Yes, Notre Dame University. It has yeah. nothing to do with Notre Dame here. Right, right. Um, they had a... Uh, or the other Notre Dame. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. So the, the program they had, it was a young program. It has been there for 10 years. And it was set up by teachers and students who graduated from that school and then got their master's in London. So the program was shaped pretty much around the idea of uh, the Bauhaus education system. So we had really similar to a lot of international design uh, curriculums. So we had the foundation year with a lot of the things were done by hand, you know, from painting gouache to doing color wheels to like understanding composition, typography. And um, a lot of the uh, teachers were part of the ISTD, International Society of Typographic Designer, I believe, in London. So it was very type heavy and very uh, specific in that way. Um, it was an intense program and I really, I was really elated to be there because I had my, in my high school, I was doing a dual program, which is something you can do in Lebanon, which is the French baccalaureate and the Lebanese baccalaureate for the last two years of your, um, high school. And I did the science path because I was, I was a good student and I had the options. I was never like, I'm not gonna give up on that because, you know, so when I went to graphic design after going six days a week to school, I was, I was in heaven, you know, spending time <laughs> doing things by hand, cutting paper, playing with colors and right. letters and fonts and composition. I was like, wow, this is like playtime. Amazing. Yeah, all the time. Serious playtime. So I took it really seriously. I worked my butt off the whole time. Um, and it, it was a blast. I really had fun. Wow. And then after that, what, what, what were your thoughts like leaving and then uh, moving abroad? What, what was Not your... immediately. No, I, I worked for four years in Lebanon. I worked in the branding department of Saatchi. Oh, oh, wait, I Saatchi knew that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It was, um, the um, design market was different 10 years ago. Um, it was one of the biggest branding agency in Lebanon. Um, they do a lot of uh, bilingual identity design, exhibition design, editorial design, newspaper design, and things like that. So it was really an um, important time in my life. You know, uh, what, what lessons did you learn fresh out? I, I think I was very exposed to the corporate environment, how yes. to get, you know, uh, stop thinking of your project as a student project, but think how you have to, like, really sell them to a client, work within these kind of conditions, working within a larger team, uh, communicating within these people, and then trying to tame your crazy ideas in your head to make sense of them. Do you remember, I'm always curious about uh, about this when it comes to people that are fresh out of college, you know, especially for people that I work with and within my own history. Do you remember that first moment of that come to Jesus moment of, holy shit, um, I'm in it now. It, like, you know, it could be a moment where you have to be at the at the office until like four in the morning or something, you know what I mean? Your first all-nighter for a real job or maybe just like a moment where you really fucked up and realized that other people's jobs are kind of on, on the line or at least affected by that. I like, think I had, yeah. I think I had one experience in my life that was really impactful. Yeah. And that was being involved in a project called the Typographic Matchmaking One. Okay. I was still working in Beirut 
they had uh, the Hut Foundation had done a project of bringing type designers together to create bilingual type faces. Okay. okay. And they wanted to the project was done and finished, and they wanted to create an exhibition to kind of highlight the whole project. And it was happening in Amsterdam, so they wanted design interns to help them put all that exhibition together. And I was recommended by my teachers, and I got selected to go to Amsterdam. So, do you smoke weed? Uh, I did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was a whole experience. That's that's probably why. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> no, but basically I found myself, um, me and like two or three or four other friends who actually were Arabic type designers or Arabic graphic designers within a team of 30 that did not speak Arabic. And we were putting a whole exhibition in the middle of Amsterdam in Holland in Europe. Okay. So that was really eye-opening for the uh, level of, you know, respect and excitement uh, that um, Dutch people had for graphic design. Oh, wow. But also how controversial the exhibition we were doing was. How so? Because the whole thing was based on taking what what they have as Hema, which is, if you want, like Walgreens here or, or, or uh, Walmart. Sure. But everything sold inside of it is branded as Walmart, you know? So it's a very... Like Trader Joe's. Kind of. Yeah. So, but it's really highly respected as a very Dutch product and commercial space. Mm-hmm. So the exhibition was an art place that translated the whole Hema to Arabic. What Hema was. So we. That's so interesting. Right. That's so subversive. Yes. So it was called El Hema. We went undercover and like studied their whole signage system. Uh, and then we translated the whole design into Arabic and we made like a huge pop-up store and then we had to invent products. To, we had typography on one labels, on chocolates, on clothes. And the whole thing blew up because the actual Hema thought that this is a real store, not an wow. environment. So they threatened to sue Mediamatic, which was the foundation like doing this whole thing. We got on the 8 o'clock news. We had Get reporters. Out. And I was a fresh out of college and being interviewed by like the Dutch national TV, like, what are you guys doing here? And I'm trying to explain <laughs> about Arabic typography. And I was like, whoa, people take this all this really seriously. Like design yeah. can affect life. It can really participate in this uh, discourse it can really ask questions and like make people look again yes and again the team was really big but the actual designers who knew Arabic were like tiny and it really rested on what we can do so that that was a huge responsibility on us and that that seven week experience in Amsterdam was really eye opening and what was the 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 overall long term effect from that was Hema was the name of the well, company? Uh, like, what, what What? do they ultimately say or do? No, they realize that it's an art uh, sure. installation, that it's not a real business. Uh, and that, I mean, nothing happened legally, but the exhibition, I mean, it was meant to be a puppet store. After opening for four hours, we stopped selling anything and it turned into just an exhibition because we're going to run out of all the products. It's so cool. They actually, they redid it the year after. They did El Hema 2, another exhibition. So it got a life on its own uh, El without us. back. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that, that, that experience, eight months out of undergrad, was really life-changing in terms of my appreciation of design and responsibility that falls on me. Yeah, in terms of representing what Arabic graphic design looks like and what it speaks for. Yeah. So that was a come to Jesus moment. <laughs> when uh, when did you think about moving to the states? Um. Yeah. So recent or, uh, or, to, or what other pit stops did you make along the way? So I was working at Saatchi and I was like starting getting that tick and bug that I needed something more yeah. about how I think about design that I need to like take the time to like you know slow down and think again. Yeah. Uh, and I remembered from my undergrad, my teacher had mentioned RISD, this amazing school in the US, but that was a really, really long shot to me. 
Um, so I started eyeing that opportunity and looking at schools in the U.S. and looking at MICA, looking at SVA, looking at like the top schools and like dreaming big. And then MICA had like a sort of uh, online uh, portfolio review where you can submit like a mini application, a couple of projects, like a short essay, two, three paragraphs, not the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And they would get back to you with feedback. And I had no idea of how long of a shot me applying to a school in the USA was. So it was like really... And then I remember two weeks after that, I got my review and it was written by Ellen Lupton. And mm. it was like really positive, really oh, wow. glowing review. Like, Ellen Lupton wrote your review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was... that this was is for graduate school? Yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So that was... That was, again, an exciting day for me. I probably have printed that review and like read it a thousand times. Yeah. But it was a green light to me like, no, that there is a, no, yeah, you can do that. You could go to the States. You can travel across the oceans to go for school. Because I had no idea. Like I knew I liked design. I knew uh, I was a good student. I know like I'm really passionate about it, but I had no idea how would I fit in within American school system of graphic design? What would they really think about my work? Right. Um, so it was such a validating, uh, encouraging response. And I kind of realized that it's not a long shot. So I applied for all these schools and I eventually went to RISDB. I think I had a soft spot for RISD since my undergrad. <laughs> so then when they said yes, I'm like, okay, I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> How was Rhode Island? How did Rhode Island treat you? Uh, Rhode Island is quiet, pretty, and perhaps boring, but that makes it ideal for really immersing yourself in, in, in graduate studies, right. which is what I wanted. I knew I'm going to come back to New York. I got into SVA, but I realized that I'm going to come back to New York anyway. So let me take that two years to really kind of take my time. And I think also I had a really positive experience at RISD. Not all my classmates did, but <laughs> I did. <laughs> I think I created my own bubble of like, I don't care about anybody. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And yeah. just really, again, worked really, really hard. And I had a blast. That's cool. What what professors did you have at RISD? Uh, we had Lucinda. We had Lu Lucy. Uh -huh. We had uh, Bethany Jones. We had uh, Tom Waddell and uh, Nancy Skolos. Oh, wow. We had Clement Valla, uh, who was also my teacher, uh, my thesis advisor. We had James Goggin. Um, all amazing, all so inspiring. Like they really take all the time to sit and listen and try to make sense of your ramblings. <laughs> Were there any uh, culture shock moments? No, there was none. That's my surprise. Is that I think the culture shock came three or four years after I came here. I think when I first came here, I was like so excited, wanted to be here so bad, I wanted to be at RISD so bad. So I was like, I was just full of positive energy and like taking everything in. Yeah. People could not pronounce my name. I didn't care about it. I made a project about people just saying my name over and over wrong to the camera. It was all like <laughs> taken in That's such positive stride, you know, like I don't, nothing's going to bring me down. You know, I had that yeah. kind of like drive to me. But I think four years after when things slowed down and like I realized, started to get into my own element. I moved to New York. I started working and then Trump happened. Oh, yeah. I think then you start. And I think... Moving from home after four or five years, you start having a different relationship. And this is where nostalgia kind of sets in. You actually yeah. start missing the things you kind of ran away from. And I think this is where, like, sometimes I struggle. When you're, like, eight years in, in the U.S., and in my case, like, one foot is here, one foot is there. Yeah. Um, that things become really, the, the contrast become a little bit glaring. Whereas the first couple of years, none of that mattered. Really? Yeah. 
Yeah, that that contrast, especially when Trump uh, came into power, have been stark to say the least. That's how this podcast happened too. Like the first episode dropped uh, two days after he was elected. It's kind of well, wow. Yeah, well, it was. I, I've told the story several times on here, but it's. Um, I had a couple of episodes in the tank, and I just needed to uh, contextualize in some way, and then it, it contextualized itself into the form it's currently in. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I think, I think he should, we should he should be credited for a lot of like new fun initiatives that people took on themselves to start. You know, silver lining. That's very true. That's very very true because he awakened or awakened or whatever the word is, but he awoke a, an interesting. Um, social justice mindset and a lot of people that otherwise might not have had one mm -hmm. and they've kind of looked at that through you know the lens of their lives and their work and social impact is very large right now mm -hmm. and and i think that'll stick around post-trump yeah i think people wanted to do something and you know some people get involved in the political sphere you know in organizing and some people do it differently and i think as creative people we just Take what we do best and then that is telling stories creating visual messages and right. then figure out what's the best way we can use these tools to like say something that kind of you know makes our opinion a little bit louder right no that's true right In our ha own have you style. heard of one-on-one 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 no what's one-on-one um it's an initiative um that um i started with a couple of friends then i'm has joel ghanem and uh, kamal kamal um, if Google you go, right yeah, you have to uh, one on one. The numbers are numerals, and then projects dot org or one on one projects on Instagram. It's really just an online presence. Um, um, it's a group of people coming together with the aim of retelling, elevating the stories of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans in the in in the USA. Americans, right. um, and it's kind of that reaction project to Trump, right? Basically. Um, it's one on one projects.com dot org dot org. Sorry. So it's a blog, but it's also an Instagram stream. And we've also started doing uh, actual live events. There was a party, there was an art gallery, there was a embroidery workshop. A couple oh, this of is years. cool. We had a lettering uh, workshop at the TDC also. Wow. Oh, yeah. this is this is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is an opportunity for me to kind of rebuild or connect with a larger community in Brooklyn, in Bushwick. Sure. Starting from Bushwick, but all over the, the States, hopefully. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's really allowed me to connect with a lot of creative people doing awesome things who also have that same drive, you know, to use their tools or what they do best to tell their stories. Yeah. And the more we got into that project, the more we realized how diverse and different and... Um, creative the community is and uh, in terms of muslim community and arab communities all not all arabs in the u.s are muslims and not mu all muslims in the u.s are from arab uh, background right so eventually we called it one-on-one -on -one, and the goal is to kind of acknowledge that diversity and difference and every time we feature someone or we talk to someone it's about going to that one-on-one -on -one level with them and hearing right. their story right and the goal is to allow space and room for the specificity of people's experiences and paths to come through and hopefully to kind of unite that under a bigger umbrella which is the whole project so i love the title of the your second post here hyphen nation a united state of longing and belonging yes that is uh, by lynn amhas it actually was part of her uh, exploration and thesis and the idea of you know belonging in multiple uh 
nations and histories and how do you reconcile that when people are telling you you have to be one thing or the other right and if you're not that then you don't belong here right oh that's so interesting it's a, such a poetic title longing it, and belonging it is yeah no i, I love that the it, it's a, a, a pensive and a, like a thoughtful project but also the the title of it still dances a bit you know mm-hmm um so when you when you graduated uh, you founded uh, Marcos Key. Yes. I'd love to know a little bit about that. <clears throat> yeah, and so... And walk us through that. So after RISD, I moved to New York, and I... New York is amazing. <laughs> right, it is. It truly is. It's such a crazy, creative city, bubbling and bustling with all Even those... where we're at right now, the energy yes. in here is like... There's so many studios. There's so many... For design itself, is really what the capital of the world, or one right. of... Um, so I wanted a taste of that, basically. So I spent the first three or four years jumping around from different studios, freelancing with some, working full-time with some. And I worked with CNT Partner. I worked with Base Design. I worked with 2x4. And I've worked with MTWTF, uh, Red Antler. Then I moved nine months to Apple in California. Then oh, I did four yes. months with IBM here. How was the, how was the Cupertino experience? Uh, much more relaxed than New York, even though I was commuting from San Francisco down to Cupertino every yeah. single day. How long does that commute? Was it two hours? Ooh, or an no hour and a half. And then way. You have to, same, yeah. Nice. It was the Apple buses, which is a fancy name, but it's just a big, huge Pullman bus with Wi Fi. That's it. Nothing fancier than that. Like, I had a similar experience when I was at Nike of, uh, just the, the, uh, the massive corporate campus yeah. and like the, I don't know how you felt about it, but or how you felt about um, Apple, but for me it was the um, seclusion mm-hmm. of being in a, a a large space dedicated to this one yes. cause. Yes, it, it was very it's, interesting. To say it this. is. It's fascinating. I mean, besides from like ordering your coffee from a floating iPad or something, all those like. You know, fancy <laughs> techie stuff. Yes. There's also, yeah, like you said, like there's a whole team working on the icon design, like considering thousands of icons. Yeah. And yep. that's your job. That's your like, such a focus. So it's really exciting to see how much energy is spent on that little thing, but it can also be a little bit um, intimidating. Maybe yeah. spending all that time on just one thing and you feel like you want to try also other things too. Yeah. But it was a freelance, um, long-term freelance kind of gig. So I came back to New York after that. How was IBM? IBM was really good. I was working under uh, Mike Abing, the creative director of IBM. Um, It was really exciting. I really, really like working with Mike. He has a really weird combination of being extremely serious and passionate about type, but yet very playful and um, outgoing and chill about it. And I love that combination. It makes a really productive work environment. Like, this is serious and we care about that more than anything, but... We're also like open to like talking about it casually. It's nothing that serious. So <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting working at IBM. It was part of um, their internal rebranding, part of their internal uh, typeface redesign. Yes, that got later on involved in doing the Arabic version for it. Yes, I remember you showed that at the uh, at the Type Directors Club Type mm-hmm. Drives Culture event. I was fascinated by that. How how extensive was that project? And also like what was the what was the the impetus for that and, and how much were you, were you really driving on that? It was a really big project. They had a full-on um, team of, I don't know, nine to 12 designers, each wow. experts in their, in their scripts. 
and we would have uh, check-in meetings every couple of weeks to kind of coordinate between and sometimes seeing what someone else is doing for Cyrillic or Hebrew might give you some ideas over how to resolve some of the issues for Arabic. Yeah. Uh, all the Arabic type design I do, I do it with my partner in Lebanon, Khajag Apelian, who is an Armenian-Lebanese type designer. So that was also a collaboration with him too. Wow. So all these experiences in New York and this eventually turned into full-time freelancing uh, with Jonathan Key, who I met at RISD. He was also in the graphic design uh, department. And we started freelancing together a lot. Right. And then we eventually realized that we have enough freelance that we can just merge it together, yeah. put a big umbrella name on it, a team up, and call it Morcos Key. So I'm the Morcos, he's the key. <laughs> <laughs> We're a graphic design studio based in Brooklyn. Yeah, no, you guys are amazing. I, I think you guys do such fascinating, beautiful, um, relevant work that is like so academically sound. It's, it's thank you. Yeah, it's really it's 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 thoughtful in a way that um, that a lot of uh, studios right now could probably take a couple of lessons from. To be honest, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, absolutely. No, you guys are uh, there's a lot of heart for for your studio right now. Yeah, I think it's an exciting time for us because I realized they don't teach you any of that in school. Yeah. They don't teach you how to run a business. They yep. don't teach you how to manage a project. They don't teach you how to get clients. Yep. So, and, and and I think I'm starting to get a kick of learning all these things by myself and like fi- figuring out the next step for us. And it's been, I mean, the way the actual studio started was also a fun story because we had that plan. Okay, next year is going to happen. Next year is going to happen. And then we had... Um, we had a project that was referred to us by our friends at, at Isometric Studio for designing an exhibition for Cooper Hewitt, which is like a really fun thing to do. But because Cooper uh, Hewitt is funded by the federal government, you have to be a business registered entity and registered with as a seller with the government. Oh, wow. So we got that's off the... That's a really nice... That's a great impetus to, you know... Start a company. Yeah, <laughs> so thing. we were on yeah. the call with them. So you're like, yeah, you guys have to have these government numbers. You have to be registered. You have to... Like, we're like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. We got that. We got that. Yeah, sure. And then we hung up the phone. We look at each other, John, and I was like, oh my God, shit. What do we do now? So we went online. <laughs> On legal zoom and we, I did legal zoom too. Right? Was it painful for you guys? Mine was very painful. I should really? have gone the lawyer. I wish I'd I'd paid the lawyer. Really? Yeah. No, totally. we got it out really quick. Maybe because there's two of you. Oh, <laughs> maybe, maybe. Maybe there because there's two of you and there was one of me and I was just like I didn't have the mental yeah. patience. It took forever. I mean, we were like, at the, um, are we doing this right? I guess. Okay, <laughs> submit. I guess we're a company now. Then you did the thing too, where you uh, you have to get the the little blur published in two newspapers. Did you have to do that part? Yes, but I think they do some of that too. They, I guess I met well. I remember having to do it myself and having to go to the newspaper and like having to physically do it. Maybe, maybe, maybe. it might be something that John did, you know? Oh, yeah. got it. Yeah. Maybe, oh, is that how you two work? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this, you do that, got it, done. <laughs> Shit. That, that's that's I, the I good a good thing about partnership is that you trust your partner then when you know when you will delegate some, but something to me or him, then he doesn't have to worry about it because right. you know he's going to be done and I don't have to worry about that thing because I know it's going to be done. That's right. So you can like focus on something else. Right, you can split the brain. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like in terms of like the uh, the type of work that uh, uh, your uh, studio does, I know John does a lot of editorial mm-hmm. as well. Like and like uh, you do a, a, a lot of amazing uh, graphic design work, um, specific to Arabic design. Like what what how do you two really collaborate, or is it really split off in terms of <coughs> the projects? 
that is, I mean, when we, we have a way of working and we're figuring it out as we go. But one of the biggest questions we had when we started that studio is what does it look like to have a studio run by two people? One whose uh, work focused on his black identity and the other one whose work is indecipherable from his Arab identity. Yeah. Like, what does that look like? And I think we've come a long way and we've found a way to kind of tackle those issues but also work with issues that are not necessarily about our identities. Yeah. So we get a lot of different clients that come to us for different reasons and that's how we kind of split the work. Usually there's one person who's leading the project. It's me or John. Yeah. And the other partner acts as a support, uh, whether by giving feedback, uh, whether by brainstorming or helping figure out the first parts of the, the project. And But yeah, the project leader is managing, is presenting, is setting everything on the right you know, track for right. the project. And right. the other partner acts as support. Right. When is That's the, how we split it. No, that makes total sense. <clears throat> when is... um, uh, How much do you think identity within the creative space matters right now because i think you two are so good at it and balancing that like what what does that what does that mean to you and like how i mean it's also something that we talk a lot about you know sometimes these uh stories that come from the community are part of the project sometimes they're sure. not sure when we're working for example as an editorial project for the 10th magazine yeah. Uh, fashion and culture magazine uh, for queer people of color. Yeah. These kind of conversation uh, are well alive in our brainstorming session. Right. Like what communities are we talking about? What's the best way to talk with them and yeah. not at them? Uh, who can we involve in this project? Uh, who uh, can we bring it on? Right. Uh, what's the best way to do that? And the same thing when working with uh, as consultants. We've we've also been subcontracting with a lot of studios in New York City to to help them figure out the Arabic part when they're working with Middle Eastern clients. Yeah. And again, our role is to make sure how do we represent that language and that identity in the best way yes. possible. Yes, and yes, it yes. can be a tricky thing. I know that I, I've reached out yeah, yeah. With, with some help. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we like that. It gives us uh, the you know, responsibility to like put all our brain, our heart and thoughts and right. do our best to kind of... Uh, do the job in the best way possible. Totally. So we talk about all these things and we inspire each other and we kind of also contradict each other, but that's how we kind of grow. Yeah. And we try to involve whoever we're working with into those conversations. We recently started uh, incorporating designers and residents into our studio work. Oh yeah, I saw that. What does that mean to you guys? So this is what we call like a glorified intern position. <laughs> Yep. We wanted to get people to help us do some project, but we also wanted to carve some space where we could also be mentors for them. Yeah. So we asked part of the application for people to kind of propose some sort of independent project that they're working on. And what we do is make sure we carve time for that weekly to sit with them and kind of talk about it, uh, give critique, help yeah. them push it forward, whatever that is. So we've had people who have done um, editorial work. Yeah. Uh, we have people who have done typefaces. Yeah. And really, it can be either connecting them with people to help push the project or give them feedback on the work they're doing or yeah. teaching them new skills that might help them do that project. So, um, yeah, that's the design and residence position. Wow, that's really cool. I think what, what I'm getting at with the, with the, uh, with the identity conversation is yeah. that I feel previously in, in art school even, 
like it's it's kind of like navel gazy you know personal work that could come off as uh as i don't know uh uh egocentric i suppose Mm -hmm. but then the identity conversation is so uh is more about um about the validation of of an individual Mm -hmm. and what an individual is and then how and how we've come out of navel gazy, even as individuals, like navel gazy into, you know, this is who I am and and how one finds power in that space. You know, right. it, I think it's a very fascinating conversation right now. And like, yeah, I think you guys are doing some great stuff for that. And yeah, I think a lot of big part of the answer, I guess, comes from community. Yeah, absolutely. We're both, John is a transplant from Alabama. I'm transplant from Lebanon. We're both in Brooklyn. Yeah. So we both are, you know, I think it's pretty evident to us that we're trying to, you know, connect with people, build communities. Yeah. So even though it might be about reflecting your own identity, your own sensibilities, your past story into a project or into when that makes sense, it's also about finding ways that that project or identity you're creating connects with the community it needs to talk to. Right. Or its audiences. So. Yeah, that's a fascinating idea. Yeah. Um, also, you have a you have a lot of hardware sitting at home. That to, I'm gonna pivot really hard right now. Like uh, you, you've won some several awards. <laughs> <laughs> like well, because you are a young gun with the Art Directors Club. Yeah. And also, you are a TDCA sender. Yes. And also, you're one of the you are one of the print uh, thirty under thirty guys. You're winning all the the age based <laughs> awards. I'm trying. <laughs> it's, and a sender is a, an age based award, right? It is under thirty five. Yeah. yeah. No, that that that's amazing. Um, I, I never got the print one. I'm still a little oh, salty no. about it. <laughs> well, that's well. I, I'm not an A sender either, but I'm not. I don't really consider myself like a hardcore uh, typographer, so that one's like okay, okay. for me. But uh, yeah, the print one I was just like always gunning for it. Never got it. But I know that's a referral one. How too. old are you? Should I ask that? Oh no, you can ask. I'm, I'm open. I'm. Uh, I turned 38 this year. Okay, cool. Yeah, born 1981. Oh, cool. Yeah. So uh, I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> Thank you. I wasn't fishing for that, but <laughs> but uh, whew. thank God. I'm, I'm trying to keep my good looks. I'm trying to Benjamin button my whole situation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, Asian don't raise in. So <laughs> um, yeah. So I, yeah, I won Young Guns when I was 28. 28 okay. now, which feels like so long ago. I can't believe it. Um, and what what class were you? 2000. I mean, the class is different than the year. There's yeah, two numbers that always yeah. mix them. I think 2013, and I was the 11th class. I'm oh, wait. Sure. Oh, that's the one with, with the glass cube. Yes. Oh, wait. Hold on. I was a chairman that year. Yeah. And, the, and then Grand Army designed yes. that cube. Yes, they did. I and was, it was like laser engraved on the inside. Yes. Oh, wow. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know I we had that, that connection. I was, yeah, I was the chair that year. Thank you. Did like, you have anything to do with, or you have a jury? We there was a jury, yeah. Right. Um, well, I just I just judged as the way I normally would have judged, but then it was the there was the group judging at the end. Mm-hmm. But then you know, I, at that point, my hand is just as valid as any other person's hand. Right. When it comes to, uh, I will say though, a little bit behind the scenes on that particular year, it was very contentious in that final day of judging. Really? Yeah, I'm not going to say any names or who was doing the what with the what. Was there a fist fight? I hope so. I, <laughs> <laughs> I remember that there was a lot of uh, a lot of back and forth from more than like 10, 15 feet away. Wow. Well, yeah, it was a big room. I think, honestly, there are probably more people in that room that should have been <laughs> in there. 
yeah. from just a sheer like quantity perspective because mm-hmm. like a, a lot of the judging experiences i've had as of late have been five or six people in a room where you can have like a conversation like a human being this one was like no that person's not like this that the third and you, you can really get caught up in uh politics. Yeah. it's yeah. fascinating i mean what do you think of design awards i think people have different opinions on them my overall point of view on design awards right now are that they uh <laughs> i think I think awards are bullshit at this point and I'm kind of, I don't value them as hard. Now I'm going to, I'm not going to be in any jury now, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, yeah, I, I think, uh, I think awards kind of drive, um, a, uh, they drive the need to maintain, uh, an organization's, uh, mm-hmm. lights, electricity bills, <laughs> right. you know? And, um, I think the, the real reward of rewards or the, the real reward for, the individual or the creative is the impact of the project. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also, okay. you know, and I think that design is the, the communication of a design isn't always based in aesthetics. And also mm-hmm. the effectiveness of a design isn't, um, uh, based on, you know, uh, on, on old parameters of what's good or bad. Right. And a lot of my... It's very subjective. It's super subjective. It also tends... I mean, yeah, I have a lot of opinions about awards too. I don't hate them and I don't like fully... I don't hate awards. I just want to clarify that okay. for anyone that wants to... <laughs> for the record. <laughs> yeah, for the record, I love awards. I love the awards that I, in particular, <laughs> have been fortunate to. I just want to say that. I think they're really helpful for somebody starting their career young. Yes. It's very kind 1, of... thousand percent. Reinforcing of like rewarding for hard work. It was very helpful for me because I I came here through an F1 visa, student visa, and then yep. I transferred to an O visa, which is a merit-based visa. And these awards are part of it. So that was the yes. drive for me. And I kind of knew that early on. So even when I was at RISD, I knew I was going to apply for an O visa and I needed awards. So I was working hard in Got that it. way. So thank you for putting that into better words than I <laughs> <laughs> No, because I've had a converse, I've had long conversation about designer words and a lot of designer friends. Because yes. especially when I work in teams and we want to submit the award and people have different feelings. Like, why do we need validation from other people on the jury who we don't think are as good as we are? Or, you know, that kind of thing sometimes. Or I That's don't need fair. them to validate my work, which is very fair. Um, and, and I think it, it, is a, it can be self-reinforcing loop and a little bit incestuous within the design community that we're like all kind of... But I think that there's also value in it in the years down the line, especially for the... Uh, uh, competition that produced these kind of animals that keep yes. a track of it. It's really nice to see 15 years ago what was the design was thinking. Yeah. What was the design culture thinking of itself? It's really right. like a feedback loop of designers talking to designers. And I think people should keep that in mind that at the end of the day, the real impact of the design, like you said, is outside the award circuit. Is, yeah, exactly. It's how it impacts people. Exactly. What difference does it make? What message does it get out there? Right. But... It could be fun to win. No, 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 you're, you're totally right. It can be fun. It's it's very fun. I yeah. I love free drinks and I love uh, cocktails. So <laughs> and I love uh, hors d'oeuvres. I well, actually, your friend uh, Andy Chen. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm. I was t- talking to him. Um. Um. After John gave his talk at mm-hmm. the at the uh, Museum of Art and Design, and he kind of broke down. Like he was a. He was uh, like a, a quote machine that he night. Is. And he is. He is fierce. He's fierce. And he said something that stuck with me forever. I think I've actually used this before. Um, actually on stage, I might have. Um, 
he said something about institutions wanting to replicate themselves in perpetuity. Mm. And I was like, that's major. Because mm. like, it's so true. And I, th I think that right now we're in a position to, or there, there's the desire where, that everyone seems to express of like, let's, let's make a hard left. You know, like we need to change. Right. And, uh, and, and I think that breaking out of that incestuous pattern right. is part of that change. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it's, it, that's, that's a vocalization that needs to happen. And then I think the, uh, the reward and jury community also needs to reflect that. It's just yeah. sometimes the jury community doesn't always reflect it. Also, yeah, it, it's, it, you're right. And it's usually set up in a way that kind of rewards the simple and flashy work that you can really yeah. appreciate in a split second. Yeah. While sometimes a lot of amazing work are really thoughtful and much more quieter and need a little bit of introspection to really get the genius behind that design. Yeah. And they're not set up to kind of highlight those. And usually yeah. what's trendy is what makes most sense on Instagram was like flashy right. and a, a half beat is much louder on a jewelry table. Yeah, And a lot true. of time that was get picked up. So people need to keep that in mind. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do, do you do a lot of jurying? Uh, I, yeah, I have done the ADC last time. I'm yeah. doing the TDC next year. Nice. So, yeah. Yeah, those are fun experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are always a good uh, two, three days out of your schedule. You got to break out. The, <laughs> <laughs> you got to set some time aside. And judge people. Exactly. <laughs> judge human beings. <laughs> other humans. Um, what's, uh, what are you working on now? What's, what's coming up for you? Um, we're doing a couple of projects outside the U.S. and the Middle East in Qatar. Um, some of them are strategy, naming, and branding for cultural institutions in Qatar. Um, and an exhibition design also in Qatar. So it's exciting for us to see um, that we're still connected uh, to that kind of um, clients in the Middle East. We are working currently with Slay. We're rebranding their Slay Festival 2019. And we tried to be more involved this time, so we're doing the whole art direction and photo shoot and design for their festival. Oh, wow. I can't wait to see how that looks. Yeah, it's starting to come out, and we're kind of excited about it. Um, what else are we working on? Um, there's also some Arabic fonts in the works to yeah. be released soon that I'm excited about. Collaborations with Commercial Type and IBM is going to be released soon. Um, oh, that hasn't been released yet? IBM's? No. I mean, I... I'm, I'm not sure if I should say that. I think it's available <laughs> online because it's going to be given for free, but they're still kind of putting the ducks in a row before launching it. Got it. So, uh, so with um, with with that, is that uh, how how is that given to the people? I think there's going to be a link on GitHub where people can download it just for free. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. See that it's so interesting, like having a project. Um, that is um, that has that ability of reach where there's so much infrastructure built into something that's as simple as like that single click, you know, mm -hmm. like that's mm -hmm. that's meant to be so accessible. Yeah, and for a type designer, it's fun because you're just giving away a tool and that people are gonna use and misuse in all sorts of ways, and it's kind of fun to see. Right. Do you get precious about the work that you put out there, or you just like give it to the people and they can do what they need to do? No, not with fonts. I know that it's meant to be used in all sorts of ways. No, I get, I get excited anytime I see my fonts used, whether it's a good or a bad way or <laughs> any other way. Uh, do you have any specific uh, memories of of uh, seeing your font in, out in the wild? Because sometimes I'll see my stuff in the wild or people might be 
wearing them or a kid might be wearing something or and I, it actually it gives me a lot of joy but what about um you? yes i mean we i used to kind of collect them but then i stopped because it just became hoarding at this point <laughs> getting anything that has um graphic has been starting to be seen in a couple of places around dubai and the uh, uae wow um a lot I've of had, money a lot of money around that one uh i hope so it's uh, i hope it's it's it has been commissioned by commercial type wow and that was their uh, entry into arabic markets in terms of their fonts gotcha. so i mean just like being visible in that market yeah yeah uh so that's been exciting that's really cool yeah um so where can our listeners uh find you on social anything oh. else that you want to promote put out there into the world it's I know easy. we have to get on a train. Yeah, what time? Two o'clock. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, I've been very mindful. I'm, I'm easy to find online. It's my first name, last name, Wael Morcos, W-A-E-L-M-O-R-C-O-S. You'll find me everywhere, Twitter, Instagram. Our studio is Morcos Key. Um, key like the key to the door, K-E-Y. Uh, that's it. You want my phone number? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could you get a phone number and address? <laughs> Throw a, a, a credit card in there? <laughs> Wael, thank you so much. This has thank been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, this was fun. Thank nice. you. So thanks, Wael, for that great conversation. That was an awesome way to kick off season four. Um, for all you listeners, you can find this podcast at iTunes, Spotify, Anchor FM, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Go to firstgenburden.com. Uh, if you want to see an archive of all the episodes, we're also active on Instagram. So go to at firstgenburden on social media. If you want to find me, uh, your host, uh, you can find me at rich underscore tu on Instagram and the other various social medias. Again, thank you to Listening Party and Canal Sheep Market. Follow them at at Listening Party Presents One Word and at Canal Sheep Market All One Word. Thanks to Des Jin for their continued support. Ben Sounds on Music. Thank you all the listeners for uh, your continued support as well. Um, Season four officially underway. First Gen Burden. Check us out next week. Be safe, everyone.